For the first year of topicals, I obsessed over what I thought was like the bullet, the silver bullet. Like you do this one thing and you would blow up and that gear came and went and there was no silver bullet. What I came to understand is that you need to have a multi-pronged approach around marketing because you're not going to hit a customer just one time and they're going to convert. Some customers may, but really what you need to do is to have this multi-pronged approach but for storytelling to be the foundation of that. So, you know, I think of a launch like our Faded Under Eye Mask. One, we cast a Baby Tate, a Maya the Dawn, a Was Good. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pili, and welcome to episode 191 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for their business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. Today's guest has built a brand around the idea that it's okay to not have perfect skin. Olamide Olowe is the founder and CEO of Topicals. You may know her as the youngest black woman to raise over $10 million in capital, but growing up, Olamide suffered from chronic skin problems like boils, acne, and hyperpigmentation. As a solution to similar problems faced by her community of spotty hotties, she created Topicals, which is a line of skin products to help people who aren't served by the line of products that are currently available in the skincare aisle. In this episode, Olamide is breaking down what it took for her to gain such rapid success, from the amazing collaborations to building a tribe to innovating new products and so much more, she's bringing us behind the curtains. Before we hear the rest of Olamide's story, I want to ask you for a quick favor. Please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others like you discover our show so we can continue to help them launch their own off-script journeys. With that, let's go off-script with the founder and CEO of Topicals, Olamide Olowe. Olamide Olowe, welcome to She's Off-Script. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So for anyone who hasn't come across you before or topicals, could you share who you are and what you do? Yes, Um, I am from Texas. I was originally born and raised in El Paso, Texas. I'm Nigerian. Both of my parents were born in Nigeria. I've been to Nigeria a ton of times. I spend quite a bit of time there um, and really excited and proud of my Nigerian heritage. I'm the founder and CEO of Topicals. We're a skincare brand transforming the way people feel about skin. We do that through effective science-backed products and mental health advocacy. I'm super excited to be on the pod. Well, we're super excited to have this conversation with you. And I believe just in listening to your background, one of your earliest experiences with entrepreneurship came about because of your college roommate. Could you share what that experience was like and what it taught you? Yes, I adore my college roommate. Her name is Rochelle Dennis. Um, I went into college thinking I was going to be a dermatologist. I was really into medicine, into science. I'm Nigerian. You know, you can really only be a doctor, lawyer, an engineer, or at least so I thought. And so um, I spent uh, two about two and a half, three years of college pre-med um, learning, you know, all the things you needed to do to get into med school. And about halfway through my college experience, I met a young woman named Rochelle and she mentioned to me that her dad owned a beauty company and um, through a series of conversation, it came out that the beauty company was Shea Moisture and she mentioned that she had watched her dad build the brand and brands like it and wanted to build something for young women. Mm. And she asked me to join her. I had no idea how to build a beauty brand. I had no idea even how to make a product. Um, And so it was really exciting and honestly feels like the story was written for me to get into the beauty industry because 
her inviting me in, her family taking me in and teaching me how to build a beauty brand through my experience at Shea Moisture really was the genesis for Topicals. Now, fast forward after graduation, you decided to launch Topicals instead of going to med school. So coming from a Nigerian background, how did your family take that decision? Okay, so split household, right? So my dad, entrepreneurial, he has been starting businesses since he was a youngin. Mm. And so he was like, you're smart, you'll figure it out. That was quite literally what he said, nice. right? He didn't say good or bad. It was just like, you're smart, you'll figure it out. Whether that is ended up going, going back to med school or being successful with whatever I was pursuing. Mm. My mother, on the other hand, was very nervous. She had just felt like I had spent so much time and was so invested in medicine that she was nervous that I was making kind of a rash decision because things felt hard mm. or they weren't as accessible. And I assured her that I really did want to pursue this. I had put my plan together and it wasn't until I launched Topicals. So two years after I graduated that she, she mentioned, she was like, I can finally breathe now. And it was so funny because I was making the joke, like you've been holding your breath this whole time. <laughs> um, and she was like, yeah, like I was nervous about what would happen. And so I'm really glad that she I made her proud mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm really glad that Topicals is doing what it's doing in the industry. Yeah. I think she just needed something tangible to brag on you yeah. about. She's like, what do I tell my friends you do? I mean, exactly. at the stage where you're still, right. You're still she figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She did not know what to tell them. But now you can tell her, you know, mama, I'm a CEO. So look at yes. me. <laughs> yes. But I also love that you decided to launch a company from a place of personal experience with chronic skin conditions, right? So could you share what was that final straw that pushed you to launch topicals that pushed you to say, okay, I'm not going to go to med school. I'm just going to go ahead and do this thing. That is such a great question. Um, I think one is just naivete. Like when you don't know what you don't know, Mm -hmm. you're more apt to jump into it when you've, um, and also, you know, I didn't really have bills. I was coming out of college. I, you know, was not married. I didn't have any kids. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it was just like, this is fun. Let's just like jump into it. I had had fun doing it at Shea Moisture. But I think from my own personal experience, I'd grown up with a ton of chronic skin conditions. So things like ingrown hairs, mm. um, boils, acne, hyperpigmentation. And I was, um, it was really debilitating. Um, same for my sister. She grew up with eczema. that was really visible around her face. So much so that she didn't go to a prom one year. You know, she had to miss out on on school and a lot of different events. And I think that experience really shaped just my experience with beauty. Um, Beauty felt like me, like a, felt to me like a burden. It didn't feel fun like everybody else. Um, And on the other side, I was one of those kids who grew up super interested in fashion and in streetwear particularly. And I just loved how it was a cotton t-shirt with, you know, let's say, for example, a Supreme logo or a Stussy logo or whatever brand that was really popular in the streetwear days of like the near the 2010s, but that the community that was built around that item and um, just the experiences, the marketing experiences, the cultural storytelling that was happening, took a t-shirt it made it larger than life. Mm. And I thought it would be super amazing to one, not only make the experience of having a chronic skin condition easier to treat, more fun to talk about, Uh, more open to be able to share and commune with people, but also to make it a cultural touch point where people could hear stories from different backgrounds. They could um, see themselves represented in marketing. I thought it would be really amazing to mix those things together. And it hadn't been done before. And when I would pitch it to people, they would always ask me, how are you going to make chronic skin conditions cool? Mm. How are you going to make something that feels so shameful and isolating? How are you going to make that feel like a point of community? And I'm really glad to say that 
my instinct around changing the way we talked about beauty has transformed the way people think about their skin versus, you know, sticking to the status quo of what it looked like to, to be a beauty brand. And that is not a small feat. I think we'll talk about spotty hotties and really how you have made it cool to have spots on your face, because that I think is a cultural shift that was very timely and that you were able to capitalize on as a company. But before that, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck at how do I start? What do I do first? So at the point where you thought, okay, I'm going to do this. What were your first steps as far as getting your first customer branding, you know, creating and formulating the actual products that you launched with? What did the beginning look like for you? For me, I'm a student. I'm such an academic. Mm. I love learning. I love reading. We were talking about Adam Grant. I read the originals. I read um, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One. Mm. I read The Tipping Point. I read anything I could get my hands on that was about innovation and about shifting culture. Um, I think Hitmakers was a really amazing book that I read as well during that time. And it was kind of a a book that was talking about how hits are made, right? How Mm. musical hits are made. And again, you start to understand that there's rules of engagement for any industry that you're in. And it's up to you to decide to bend, break, or rewrite the rule. And I think that frame of thinking really helped me in approaching the beauty industry because I could have, I knew a lot about the beauty industry from my time at Shea Moisture, but I'd say that period between um, Shea Moisture being acquired and me leaving the brand and the start of Topicals there was that time period where I had to not only take what I had known of the industry and shift my mindset around what could be created. Mm. And so I spent a lot of that time really understanding consumer behavior, psychology, community building, because those are really the building blocks for what becomes a brand that people love um, once you launch. So when it came to creating the actual product formulations, how did you go about that? Because you're, you're now working or dealing with an audience that has chronic skin problems that they typically would go to a dermatologist to prescribe the medication. They don't mess around with things. So how did you formulate and create products? And then secondly, how were you able to convey to them that this is something that you can trust and use? Because quite frankly, I don't mess with what I put on my skin. So how did you accomplish that? Yes. So again, going back to my academic background, I was pre-med in college. So I was very familiar with academic journals. Um, And for people who aren't super familiar with that, it's basically when a university, um, a group of um, whether it's research students or PhDs or even in some cases, doctors will do a study on some sort of topic or ingredient and they will publish that journal um, in an academic journal. This for for skincare, it's JDD, um, it's JAMA, it's these different um, different uh, publications. And for the everyday person who doesn't have access to this um, at a university, Google Scholar is your best friend. So I would spend a ton of time after I graduated because I no longer had access to some of the academic um, publications I did before. But I would use Google Scholar and I would look up things like hyperpigmentation or discoloration or dark spots just to understand, one, the scientific things that were happening in the skin, right, at a molecular or cellular level. Mm -hmm. I truly wanted to understand why certain ingredients didn't work that well on darker skin tones, right? Like what was it about darker skin tones and really any skin tone that made a dark spot form? What were the different ingredients that you could use to treat um, or um, lighten the discoloration? And so from there, I really started to just build this dossier, honestly, of information about 
particularly hyperpigmentation, given that was the first category I was really interested in. And from there, I started to read um, and see who were the names on the journals, right? Like who were the professors? What were the schools that this information was coming out of? And a lot of where the, some of this information was coming out of was Stanford. And so I was really fortunate. Um, I was able to work with the chief pediatric dermatologist out of Stanford. And so she sat on our advisory board and helped to um, validate some of the things that we were talking about. And I think that in the startup world, it's very normal for someone like an, a dermatologist or someone who is an expert to join the board of a company in exchange for equity. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, in some cases, folks don't really um, know that that's the case, right? You think you have to pay someone. Obviously, you're not going to get a ton of their time given you're not exactly exchanging cash. Mm-hmm. But if this person, this expert believes in what you're building, they will sign on to be an advisor for your company. And so that's how we really got the first um, ideas around formulation, around science, around validation of the concept that we were building. And then from there, in terms of getting people to really believe that this product could work, is we did education. I think that so many people don't know what they don't know. Mm. And particularly the community that we were addressing was people with hyperpigmentation, which is typically Black communities or communities of color. And so a lot of them have actually been pushed out of academia and didn't actually know the molecular level of why hyperpigmentation was occurring. So what we did is we took the information that was really inaccessible, really hard to understand, and our idea was to make science fun. So when we um, were first gearing up to launch, this was one part a community building effort, one part an education effort. We designed this quiz um, that was honestly really inspired by the magazines you read when you were a teen, where you would. it was either a horoscope um, quiz or it was one of those quizzes where it's like, are you a spotty hottie or not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it would be the different arrows. And so we just used a lot of nostalgia and a lot of fun to educate people. So this quiz was called Skin, Sun and Stars, and it was a mashup of like your horoscope and skincare advice. So you'd give us your time of birth, your date of birth and choose your skin conditions. And we'd give you quiz results. That was your big three based on ingredients that were really effective for whatever skin condition you had. Uh-huh. And so. By doing so, we partnered with some estheticians online. This is when skincare Twitter was a really big thing during COVID. And we kicked the game off and we had 10,000 people play the game. And Just um, organically um, through collaborations with them. Through collaborations, yes. And I think what's also really great about what we did is we made a referral. We said, if you played the game and you shared it with someone, Mm -hmm. we donate a dollar to mental health, right? And so we Mm -hmm. found an organization that we could partner with. And so we were you know, giving back to the community, we were educating folks and we made it fun. And in doing so on honestly a shoestring budget, we were able to start to build this community and start started positioning ourselves as an authority of fun, inclusive, effective skincare. Mm, and that has worked marvels. I think that was really the data that you used to later on help you raise capital, which we'll talk about. Um, so I know early on you mentioned that you had someone who sat on your board from a medical perspective. And I know she's kind of been termed as your co-founder. Is that right? Is that the role she played? So that's two parts. So one, I did have a co-founder who actually started her career. It's so funny because we're the same age. So career is a funny word because she was 14 when she started working at Stanford Mm -hmm. and she had eczema herself. So she spent a lot of time studying and understanding the skin and um, she had worked at Stanford and 
through her connection is how we actually brought the chief pediatric dermatologist. Got it. So I was someone who was super adamant about making sure that like science was a big part of the brand because I wanted to make sure that when we went out, I mean, someone with a chronic skin condition that's going to a dermatologist for a debilitating skin concern, you don't necessarily just want to put this very brightly pink colored tube. Right. Work. And so it was really important to me that science was at the core of what we did and what we built. Mm. So what would you say are the pros and cons of starting out with a co-founder and how did you navigate your decision to ultimately decide to part ways with your co-founder? Amazing question. So I think that there's such beauty in building with others. I think that others bring a skill set and even just a mindset sometimes that is not your own. Mm -hmm. And so it was an amazing experience to work with someone like her who had even more. I thought I was like, you know, the dermatology person who really loved skin, but she was someone who had really studied and um, spent a lot of time. I think at the time she had seven academic journals under her belt. Like she had published seven. Wow. I think at that time we were 23 or 24. And so she was someone who, again, very much understood science to a a molecular level. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that people don't understand that building a business is extremely difficult. It's really taxing on your mental health. You know, no matter how much we talk about the balance that we, you know, strive for, balance really is a fallacy in the startup world especially for founders, Mm -hmm. because everything is pulling at you from every direction. And I think sometimes not everyone wants to do that or can handle that. And so I think that um, while it was like a very tough decision, um, I think that the company is better because she was here. And I think it's been um, amazing to see how the company has also grown since she's um, no longer been with the company. I think I've had to um, learn how to be a leader in so many different ways and spaces. Mm -hmm. And so it has definitely like stretched me and pulled me in different ways, but I'm really fortunate for the time she spent at the company because she has um, a very amazing knowledge around science and skincare. Mm, I love that. But I, I think more specifically, when you reach that point where it's time to have the conversation, what was that like for you guys to decide, okay, she probably raises her hand and says, I don't think this is for me. So what was that process like for anyone out there who maybe is thinking about leaving a partnership that they have? I think it's important for everyone to do what's best for themselves. And I also think that um, what is interesting, and we'll get into this when we talk about creative entrepreneurship, is just that like business is it's just such a tough thing. And I think that um, being open with people, being transparent with people mm-hmm. is probably honestly the only thing you can do. Yeah. And I think that different situations in terms of co-founder splits are going to be unique because mm. there are just intricacies and complexities that are hard to explain. And I think that um, at the end of the day, it's doing what's right for you and what's right for the company. And I think as a founder and as a CEO, I have a fiduciary duty to the investors, to my customers, yeah. to the community to continue keeping this brand going. And sometimes that is going along with people. And sometimes it's, you know, having to, to make tough decisions about um, how the company grows and what direction it goes in. Absolutely. So you mentioned investors and I believe as an 18 year old, it took you about two years to raise your first round of capital with over a hundred investors. That's a lot. That sounds like a lot of time and a lot of work. Um, I've heard that you attribute the length of time that it took you and maybe the number of investors you had to go to to uh, the fact that you were inexperienced. So looking back, how would you have done things differently? Yes. So I 
definitely feel like I spent a lot of time, um, wasted time pitching to investors at the wrong stage or pitching to investors who didn't invest in beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that while venture capital and entrepreneurship is such an innovate, innovation-driven industry, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that are still very archaic. The way that you get access to this capital is through networks and through intros, which is difficult, difficult if you are someone like myself who I was an athlete in college. Um, I didn't study finance. Um, I really wasn't in the entrepreneurial circuit. Mm. Um, and then beauty, the industry that I chose, wasn't one that typically received investment money from investors. And so because of that, it was really difficult to find who could understand what I was building. Because at the end of the day, while we sell beauty products, I don't necessarily consider us a beauty company. I consider us like a storytelling engine, mm. right? And that sounds so meta and so big, but really I think that's what's driven so much of our success is the storytelling piece because anyone can make a dark spot product. Anyone can make a body serum. Anyone can make an under eye mask, but it's the way you storytell. It's the way you're inclusive in your marketing. It's the way that you bring people along with you that really makes the difference of you know, standing out or blending in because beauty is a very um, tough industry to be in because any and everyone, like the barriers to entry have lowered so anyone can enter into the market. And while, you know, we welcome def- different brands and products that come in, for customers, it's really hard to, to, to sift through everything and, and know what's actually going to stand out. And so I think that investors, the investors that eventually invested in topicals really understood storytelling. And uh, Lara Hippo actually led our seed round in the summer of 2020. And it's because Lara Hippo invests in businesses that are storytelling engines. They've invested in businesses like Glossier, Casper, Warby Parker, mm. brands that, you know, Casper selling mattresses, but they had this story of how they were going to sell the mattress and what innovation they were going to bring to the table and how the branding was going to be different. And they were going to speak to a specific customer. Similarly with Glossier, I think Glossier to this day is still an amazing case study Mm -hmm. of community storytelling and just the fact that that can be such a, a growth engine. And I think in the past for beauty brands, you were either a product company or you were a marketing company, right? Either had stellar product that was extremely scientific and customers maybe didn't understand why it worked, but they knew it did work. Yeah. Or you were a brand that was all marketing. Your products maybe weren't that great, but it wasn't about great products. It was just about fun and colors and, you know, how many different, you know, variations of the same product could you put out, right? Mm. And so it's super interesting to see a brand like Glossier and I say Gloss Topicals exist because a Glossier exists that we've seen storytelling become just as important as product efficacy. Hmm. And I, I would say that you guys continue to knock it out of the park as far as your storytelling, your marketing, your collaborations. I think you've done collaborations with Baby Tate, Clear Trappa. Do you think you would have been able to have collaborations of that sort before you raised capital? You know, it takes money to make money. And so we obviously partner with people that we really respect yeah. and we um, love the content that they create. Um, but that means you have to pay them to be a part of the things that you're building. Yeah. What I've loved is that the community has definitely wrapped their arms around us. And while we're funded, we're not the most funded beauty brand. And so we sometimes can't offer exactly what our counterparts parts offer. Mm-hmm. And I feel really excited and happy that the community wraps their arms around us. And in some cases, it's like they want to participate. They want to be a part of it because they realize how it's pushing the culture forward. And so I don't think, though, I would have been able to do the types of partnerships we do, be the brand that we are without capital, which is why I think it's really important for us to, A, 
have more access to venture capital, private equity, loans, lines of credit. But I also think it's really important for us to also design new ways to fund businesses because we are entering this new era that not every business needs to be a billion dollar business Mm -hmm. and the rat race that that creates and it's an impact on people's mental health. While we can squeeze a couple hundred million dollars more out of someone at what expense? And I think not every business needs to be a billion dollar business. Some businesses are going to be $10 million businesses, but a $10 million business could shift our community, could change the lives of so many people, not only in, you know, the founder creating generational wealth for themselves and their family, but also the employees that they, you know, work with. And so I think that what I've spent a lot of my time and I'm not the expert here and I definitely am not the spokesperson, but just creative entrepreneurship. And what that means to me is being a left brain creative. So a left brain creative, which is what I would consider myself, is someone who is super analytical. So you'd typically be seen as the person who is running the numbers or is scientific. But this left brain creative is someone who um, desires to create a an industry or a model that also takes into its account creativity, mm-hmm. right? It's not just about numbers and dollars and cents. It's also about creative ways of doing things, right? Creative business models, creative ways of funding, creative ways of marketing. How do we take the science and the function of things that is really important when you're a left brain, mm-hmm. but how do we also add that creativity that a right-brained person really, that, that seat that they occupy? And it's been so fun over the last couple of months, really, um, spending a lot of time trying to understand what that means and spending time with people like yourself, other creatives who are finding new ways to get the message out, right? Having conversation or this think tank sessions on like, you know, it doesn't have to be this way, right? We, we could create and design. I was telling you a little bit earlier that I'm, I'm coming to this epiphany of the fact that I get to design the life that I want to live. And Yes, we definitely have to do things that we don't love doing. Yeah. Like that is that does not excuse us from those things. But this idea of your zone of genius, I read somewhere, I can't remember who this concept of zone of genius is attributed to, but just this idea of spending at least 80% of your time in that zone of genius. Mm-hmm. You know, and I tried to spend a lot of my time trying to figure out how do we create new business models and new ways of partnering with people that um, just designs and spawns new types of partnerships and collaborations. And it's clear that you are getting the opportunity to spend that time in your zone of genius. And I want to really dig into how you were able to make that happen. But before then, I'm curious, when you think about the efficacy of your marketing, early on, it was very guerrilla and it was very effective for you with the, the quiz that you created. But since then, I see your ads all over the place, the under eye mask. They got me, right? So what would you say has been most effective for you? Is it the paid collaborations that you're doing with people with great, you know, grassroots followings on Instagram and TikTok? Is it the ads that you're running? What seems to be working for you? Is it just the content in general on Instagram? What is working to actually get new spotty hotties in the door and convert to revenue? For the first year of Topicals, I obsessed over what I thought was like, the bullet, the silver bullet, like mm. you do this one thing and you would blow up and that gear came and went and there was no silver bullet. What I came to understand is that you need to have a multi-pronged approach around marketing because you're not going to hit a customer just one time and they're going to convert. Some customers may, but really what you need to do is to have this multi-pronged approach, but for storytelling to be the foundation of that. So, you know, I think of a launch like our faded under eye mask, right? So one, we cast a baby Tate, a Maya the Dawn, a was good, right? So that 
representation of a rapper or a streetwear icon, one that cuts through the noise of, you know, wow, wait, I love them. I follow them. Like that's, I want to be, I want to use the same products that this influencer is using. Like this is super exciting that they're, you know, getting to be a part of this campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, the product itself is marketing, right? The packaging, the under eye masks have that very beautiful design that people love. So, you know, inherently we, we asked ourselves as we were building this product, as we we're thinking about marketing is how do we build marketing into the product itself? Not just the actual rollout, mm -hmm. but when this person uses this product, how do we make sure that they want to share it? Right. So for our, our packaging for the tubes or for bottles, you know, the, the branding is very colorful. It's very fun. It's not typically what you would see from a ointment type mm -hmm. product. It's cute um, on the shelfies that I've seen too. Selfies, right. Right. <laughs> But this product, this under eye mask was even more fun because it was something that you could visibly wear. You know, right. skincare, it's like you apply the lotion, you apply the serum and it's gone. You can't see it until you see that before and after. But for us, we said, how do we design something that is inherently viral? Mm -hmm. And so that was a part of the marketing process as well. But marketing starts all the way at product development. It doesn't start after you've developed the product, right? Um, from there, we have our insiders. We have a, of a group of over 4,000 insiders who share um, content online. They, they talk about topicals from their point of view, right? They're gifted product. Mm -hmm. um, they, we have a creator fund that we've been working really hard to um, get as many people as possible who are um, just starting off in the content creation game. You don't necessarily have a ton of followers, but you're someone who's passionate. We want to figure out how to ways to partner with you in a paid capacity, mm -hmm. right? And so we have this... In, uh, creator um insider program that you know we had them sharing content right so it's more of like a everyone's an influencer to someone mm -hmm. so it's more of this smaller micro approach now for that creator fund are you administering are you managing that yourself in-house or is there an agency oh wow we manage it ourselves okay. and i will tell you that it is really tough like we don't always get it right it's not always perfect but what i've loved is that our community is always giving us advice and help um, we have a subsection of that insider uh, group called the Hype Squad. And these are people who have volunteered to help moderate our um, Geneva community chat. They're people who have, um, they help people out when someone asks a question and our team can't get to it because we're a limited, we're a very small team. I don't think people realize how small the topicals team really is, but they're, they're jumping in to help. And I think what's so beautiful about that is just like, it is really community oriented. Mm -hmm. Like topicals is not owned by us it's owned by like the community and i think it can be fun but also scary in that regard because you're held to a standard and i think that that's something that keeps me up at night is like how do we do right by our community and we're, again we're not always going to get it right mm -hmm. but how do we create a, a space for communication to apologize to hold ourselves accountable when we don't get it right but also to celebrate with people when we do get it right and to create access and opportunity for folks you know like my intention has never been to be perfect because it's impossible yeah. my intention has always been to be a brand that has that like constant communication with our um, community and so outside of that i would say layering on is paid but paid works when you have a, a message and it's tailored to a specific audience. And so we do paid marketing through ads on TikTok and on Instagram. But again, if you were if you start with paid ads and you don't build the foundation of storytelling, of community, of um, you know, influencers, it, it's just like you, you're not going to be able to be successful because there'll be some piece of this that is missing. Mm. And so I think it's really important to just never think that there's a silver silver bullet, but to really think about how do I serve this customer holistically, right? I tell my team all the time, you don't have to be everything to everyone, but you have to be everything to one. And so it's really important to figure out who that one is, where do they shop, 
What time do they go to bed? You know, where do they go to school? Where do they work? What circles are they in on the internet? Mm -hmm. Because from there, you can really just tailor and create a message that works for that person. And what's really great is other people tend to then jump on, right? They may not be the exact target demo, but something about topicals, maybe it's our mental health advocacy or it's our beautiful packaging or the efficacious product Mm -hmm. or being an inclusive brand, like something about our brand ends up then attracting a person that may not be our core, but there's someone who is excited about what the brand stands for. Wow. You broke that down so beautifully. And I think that's going to help a lot of people. But earlier you talked about team. So let's dive into that a little bit. I've heard you mention that after you raised your first big round, you hired an executive coach. So I'm curious what led you to hire an executive coach and how have they impacted you personally as you're growing your business? Yes, I think we somehow, some way got to this thought process that people leave themselves at the door when they enter work, right? We leave our bad habits, mm-hmm. we leave our attitude, we leave all these different things at the door and it's not the case. And so I've noticed that there are things in my own personal life that show up through personal therapy that I have to get better about when it comes to like work. And so having an executive coach keeps me accountable to my team um, around my own anxiety of like, okay, uh, what if I mess up? Or what if I X, Y, and Z, I'm only 26. Like at the time when we launched this company, I was 23. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, and I'm hiring people. And like, what if they don't believe that I'm the best person for the job? There was just a lot of thoughts going through my head around whether I was the best person to do this. Um, and my executive coach helped on the anxiety piece there. But there are also other things, right, around hiring and firing folks, which is extremely difficult. It's not a fun thing to be in. And I think that it has probably been the hardest thing as a people pleaser mm-hmm. to have to go through, right? Yeah. When either the topicals isn't the right place for someone, someone isn't the right fit for topicals, like it, it's, it's anxiety inducing. It's really hard. And so like I've always said, we don't always get it right. But what we always try to do is treat people with respect. We try our best to communicate with folks. And again, we, we're not going to get it right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I'm really proud of just like the work that we've done and just like how we've tried to build a company that um, is a place that people enjoy working. And I think that's something that has also come to my attention through working with an executive coach is that like entrepreneurship and working at a startup is not for everyone. And I think that it seems fun because even myself, sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I'm cut to work at a startup. I'm not (laughs) sure if I'm cut to lead a startup because it's just, it's hard. And there's not, there's not enough resources. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough money, even having, having raised money. You know, I look at a company like Topicals, which we've raised a lot of money considerably, considerably like um, than other black owned brands. But even at that, like we don't have the same budgets as some of these larger companies. And we also are held to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. So by our own community, by our own community. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, even if it feels like, okay, it's amazing. Topicals has raised money. They should be able to offer X, Y, and Z. It's like, if I mess up, if there's a dollar out of place, I am held to a, an impossible standard. And so I also allow myself sometimes to vent and cry and be like, this is a lot of pressure to be under mm. as a young 20 something year old black woman, but I'm going to try my best. I'm going to show up every day. Sometimes I'm not going to show up and I'm actually going to take time off mm-hmm. because I need to pay. But I think that our community does definitely hold us to a standard that people, you know, want to see us be everything to everyone and it's just it's impossible and i think like even more and more lately i'm realizing that what i need to do as a founder and i'm someone who i don't like to complain about problems i don't like to 
ask for help. So I tend to just like eat things and just like, it's fine. Like if something doesn't go right, like I take the blame for it. I like, you know, and what I'm starting to realize that it's like sharing this information, sharing these conversations, speaking with people like yourself, doing podcasts like this, help for people to humanize me Mm. and humanize topicals a lot more. Um, And I think that that's my, my hope with like starting this business and like giving people I never say it's advice because I I think everyone's journey is going to be different, but sharing what I wish I knew is that in this process, when people then find themselves in the place that I'm in, because I would hope that we could create more topicals, more Shea Moistures, more Myel Organics, that people would have heard this podcast or I'm more open, whether it's going live or just sharing more information about how hard this is and how impossible. And I think, again, the fact that we are existing as black business folks in an institution that was not created for us. And so we still are operating within a system that we don't fully control, Mm -hmm. but we're doing our best, you know? And I think that this is why for me, I'm so passionate now just about like creative business models. Cause it's like, how do we design a business, a life, a country, a, you know, a a business that we're excited about that gives back, but also is profitable enough to hire more people that are diverse, you know, and and champion and serve communities that have typically been underserved. But speaking of hiring new people or more people, who have you been able to bring onto your team that allows you to work on your zone of genius for more of your time than you previously did? Yeah, I think every person, whether they're with Topicals now or they're not no longer with us, has played such an important role in Topicals. Mm. I wouldn't say that there's not necessarily one person that hasn't been important to the vision of this business. I will say that some of the key roles that I hired that I think as a founder you really need to be able to bounce ideas off if you don't have a co-founder or you don't have someone in this capacity is I have a VP of strategy and business ops. And um, we actually met in college. Um, and I remember when I met her, I thought she was absolutely brilliant. And I told myself, if I ever get to work with her, like that'll be like an amazing, like I vividly remember it in my head being like, just, you know, people, you meet them, you're just like, this person is spectacular. Mm-hmm. And um, about two and a half years ago, maybe yeah, two or three years ago, um, I reached out to her. She was working in consulting and I was like, hey, like, do you like your job? And she was like, good icebreaker <laughs> yeah she's like, feeling over there she was like it's i mean it's tough working sometimes in corporate and so she um came and joined the company and it's been really amazing because she studied finance in college so she's someone who really understands the business of things she knows how to break down okrs kpis like really knows how to set us on a trajectory while i get to focus more on the marketing the product the storytelling the team building mm-hmm. efforts and so i would say that whatever your weakness is for some people, their weakness is not on that side. Whatever your weakness is, hire for that weakness. And make sure that these are people who can be honest with you, people who can tell you what it is. Um, you don't want to be around too many people who are just telling you yes every day. You want people who challenge you. Um, but everyone on my executive team has been really helpful on in their different areas where they work. Just to say, you know, actually, I think we should go a separate, a different direction, right? Even when I'm like, oh, I think we should go this way. They're like, I actually believe we should go this direction. And um, because people are so um, great at what they do, it's so easy for me to be like, you know what, actually, like we definitely should test that person's idea Mm -hmm. because they are the best person. They're the expert in that field. I think it's really helped a lot to allow me to let go of a lot of parts of the business. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, never perfect. And sometimes I'm so stubborn on certain ideas, but I would say 
my team really is great. You're like only as good as your team. Right. The team that you and you have to you trust them them enough to do what you brought them on board to do. Right. Right. You have done a lot in a very short amount of time. Where can we expect topicals to go next? What's next for you? Um, I think continuing to serve this audience. I think that there's so many more skin conditions, so many more stories to be told. And I'm excited that we're getting the opportunity to do that in partnership with the community. Mm -hmm. This year, our mandate was really um, to be at the center of culture. But we realized that in order to be at the center of culture, you had to bring cultural tastemakers in to allow them to tell the stories versus us being the only purveyors of um, and and kind of storytellers. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really fun to work with the community. You'll see more things like that for us, especially in the second half of the year. Um, making products that are efficacious and safe for all skin tones. Um, And then I'm really excited. This month we announced the launch of our mental health fund. We've been working um, in the community doing uh, partnerships with different mental health organizations, but we formalized it now and we selected five organizations that we're going to be um, supporting financially, but also um, helping them to also understand why Topicals has been successful. What can they take into their own organizations Mm -hmm. that can help them be successful? And I think we're always so quick to think about businesses But we also need to support the nonprofits that are doing the great work on the ground. And a lot of nonprofits open and close because they don't have that sustainable kind of like mindset around how they build their um, social give back. And so it's been really fun to work alongside them and say, hey, this is how you kind of think about a sustainability from a business perspective. And how do we support that? How do we connect you to people that can can continue to make this a sustainable and ongoing effort versus, you know, I I feel so sad sometimes when some of the partners that we've worked with in the past, like have to close their doors because it's not sustainable. And so we're just trying to do our our best as a company to help share these sustainable business practices that some of these nonprofits can use to, to continue to scale. I don't think we put a fine enough point on why it is you're so passionate about mental health when you are a skincare company. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. Sure. Again, with the data, I love data. I love to quantify, um, just, why it's so important for a certain for us to look up and understand that certain things are actually very interconnected. So there's a deep connection between skin health and mental health. Mm-hmm. There is this new burgeoning field of psychodermatology, which quite literally stands for um, you know the mind skin connection or the mind skin and skin health connection. Mm-hmm. And so it's this question of you know does stress cause a breakout or does a breakout cause stress? And it's really chicken and the egg. And we found that they are interconnected. And so um, people with chronic skin conditions are two to six times more likely to experience depression and anxiety. And so as someone myself who dealt with feeling embarrassed, you know, I didn't wear a swimsuit until I was um, a senior in college because I was really embarrassed about my bikini line because I had dark spots from ingrown hairs. Mm. Right. Or my sister who, again, missed days um, at school or missed homecoming and prom because of these flare-ups, you know, the impact that it had on her own mental health and her confidence. Um, We have to stop looking at beauty as such a superficial thing because your outward appearance really is how people see you, view you, and categorize you. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we wanted to just spend time studying what actually is that connection between skin health and mental health and remind people that they make skin look good, not the other way around. Mm, Amen. I love that. And I love that you have actually taken steps to back up the words that you are saying. I think that's really something that isn't always evident or apparent with with different brands. But for anyone who loves everything that they've heard you say today and wants to follow your journey as you grow topicals, where can we find you? Where can we connect with you after we hear this episode? Yes, I am on social media a little bit more than I'd like to admit, Um, but I am on socials. 
my first name and my last name and um, topicals on all social media. You can find us there. Um, and yeah, just like, I think I'm coming out of my shell a little bit more. I've always been an extroverted person, but again, like I've mentioned, because I'm one of those people who's, I can do it all by, by myself. I don't tend to kind of share the difficulties of the business, mm. but I've been spending a lot more time trying to be more open and figure out ways to talk to people about how, like the ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it can get ugly and, but also talk about the good stuff, you know, talk about like how people can design a life that they want to live. You know, your, your life actually doesn't have to look like my life. It doesn't have to be this high flying business for you to be successful. Like just being able to, I asked a question on Twitter the other day, what does success look like as a creative? You know, sometimes having a lot of employees is not what success looks like to a lot of creat- mm-hmm. creatives. A lot of people want to be solopreneurs. So how do we have conversation? How do we create access and give people um, resources to decide, okay, I want to build a hundred million dollar business, or I want to build a $1 million business and each of those being successful. Mm-hmm. How do we make space for that? How do we create again, more funding opportunities, more resources, more community around the fact that whatever success looks like to you is just fine and is, is good and well. It's just about figuring out what that is for you. Mm. Well, we can certainly continue that conversation with you on your socials because it sounds like it's absolutely something that is needed within our community of entrepreneurs. But um, Olamide, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. This was amazing. And there were so many hidden nuggets in everything that you had to say. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad that I got to get on the pod and chat with you all. Thank you. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you found this show helpful, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Offscript, or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Offscript.com. All right, with that, we'll see you right back here next Thursday for another episode. Bye.